Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, celebrating a classic that's also one of the most translated books in the world, Le Petit Prince, or The Little Prince, by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Three enthusiasts on how it changed their lives. The precise meaning of The Little Prince is famously elusive, but its appeal seems universal. Sales figures are astonishing, an estimated 200 million copies since its publication more than 80 years ago. Apart from religious texts, it's said to be the most translated book in the world, appearing in some 300 languages. There have been several in English, including the very first American edition by Catherine Woods in 1943. The work didn't come out in France until 1946. The Vichy government had banned its publication during the Second World War. Six years ago, England's Michael Morpurgo, famous for his play War Horse, which was made into a movie by Steven Spielberg, was invited to do a new English translation. As he says, The Little Prince defies literary definitions because it embraces so many— a novella, a prose poem, an illustrated children's novel, a work of philosophy, psychology, politics. He goes on to remark that perhaps the genius of the story is that it's unfathomable. It is a dream we spend the rest of our lives trying to interpret. It is a perfect fusion, a marriage of mirage and miracle, marvel and mystery. Admirers include Orson Welles, Anais Nin, and James Dean. In fact, one of the book's most famous lines, The Secret Revealed by the Fox to the Prince, is on a memorial near where Dean died in a car accident. What is essential is invisible to the eye. The full sentence goes, It's only with the heart that one can see rightly. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry was born into an aristocratic family in Lyon, France, in 1900. His father died before Antoine was four years old. He and his mother and four siblings moved to live with relatives in different parts of France, ending up for a time in Le Mans, famous for being a center of early aviation. Saint-Exupéry first flew in a plane when he was 12 years old and made his first solo flight at 21. He tried a number of things, studying architecture, serving in the military, and eventually he became a pilot for a private airline flying mail from France to Senegal. When he was 27, he was appointed airfield chief for a remote posting at Cape Juby in southern Morocco. It was here he wrote his first book, a memoir called Southern Mail. He also flew in South America, where he met his Salvadoran wife, Consuelo. He drew on that experience in his first novel, Night Flight, which was published in 1931. It met with immediate success, winning the prestigious Prix Femina. Saint-Exupéry's next book, Wind, Sand, and Stars, came out in 1939 and won the French Academy's Top Fiction Prize, as well as the American National Book Award for Nonfiction. 
At the start of the Second World War, he flew reconnaissance missions for France. But when the country fell to the Germans, he fled to New York. There he wrote this surprising and perhaps consoling fantasy, The Little Prince. After it was published in the U.S. in both English and French in 1943, Saint-Exupéry rejoined his French squadron in northern Africa. On July 31, 1944, he set out from Corsica to fly over occupied France and never returned. Although his plane was eventually recovered, like his character The Little Prince, he vanished. Stacy Schiff is a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer whose subjects have included Vera Nabokov, the wife of Vladimir, Cleopatra, witches, and Benjamin Franklin. But her very first biography, which came out in 1994, was A Life of St. Exupery. Mark Osborne is a producer and director most famous for Kung Fu Panda and SpongeBob SquarePants. In 2015, he made a mixed-media animated feature film, The Little Prince, with the voices of Jeff Bridges, Rachel McAdams, Marion Cotillard, James Franco, Paul Giamatti, and Ricky Gervais. Eric Dupont is a Quebec novelist and teacher whose most recent book in English is called Rosa's Very Own Personal Revolution. It won the 2023 Governor General's Literary Award for Translation. I spoke to Eric Dupont, Mark Osborne, and Stacey Schiff in 2018 when they joined me to celebrate the 75th anniversary of The Little Prince. Just a note, this conversation includes reference to suicide. I'd like to begin by asking each of you, when did you first read The Little Prince? I'll start with Eric. I first read The Little Prince. It must have been shortly after I learned how to read. In, um, it must have been 1977, uh, 78, something like that. And what, what did you think? Well, I was, uh, I was born in 70. I was seven or eight years old. I was amazed by the humor of the author. The, um, I remember clearly thinking that he, I found him quite dairy to introduce his own drawing, which was not a very good drawing of, a, of an elephant. I don't know if you remember on the second page, there's a, a poor drawing of an elephant. And I, I thought that it took some courage from him to, uh, to put that in a book, uh, even though it was not a very good drawing. Uh, who gave you the book? My dad's second wife gave me the book. Do you want to elaborate? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, she was very preoccupied with our education, my sister's education and, and mine as well. And um, I guess this is one book that she wanted us to read and talk about. There were books that we were just allowed to read and not talk about, but this one, we had to talk about it before and after. And she really wanted to make sure that we, we started thinking about some of the... Um, the important uh, teachings of uh, Le Petit Prince. The more I think about it, I mean, this was a woman who, uh, she belonged to the generation that had left the church, the French-Canadian generation that had left the church. And I remember her talking about the way there's no God in Le Petit Prince, that you don't feel the, the presence of the divine. There's no inshallah. There's no God willing in the little prince. It's this, this is a story about uh, human beings asking themselves how a person should be and trying to find an answer through their own experiences and that of others. And she insisted a lot on that, that um, our experiences are formed uh, through contact with human beings. 
and that the answers you know that the, the answers that we are looking for are often much closer than we think and did you understand what uh, your uh, was she your stepmother or what what she was trying to, to teach you yes well it is difficult for a child to understand the concept of responsibility i think uh, empathy comes earlier and since responsibility in a way is i think a ramification or a consequence of uh, of empathy its understanding comes later in life and therefore i had a very hard time understanding why the prince would go back to the flower i mean how could anyone feel any empathy for such a selfish being but this is something that as a child i had difficulty understanding how to feel responsible for for someone even for oneself stacy when when did you first encounter the book the book lived in our living room when I was a child. My mother was a professor of French, and so it occupied that sort of upper shelf where, with Gide and Rambo and Camus and all the writers whom I couldn't understand as a small child. And I, I, I think it was pulled down early and read to me. So it had a sort of aura about it because it had come from this, from this amazing upper domain to which I had no access, really. I, I think it was largely lost on me as a child. I think it was lost on my children when it came to read it to them as well, partly because those concepts of responsibility and fraternity didn't have any meaning to me at that point. And, and I think the pot shots at the adult world had no meaning whatsoever. So I, I think I really, I fell in love with the humor and the illustrations. Those, those animals stayed with me for many, many years. And with the tenderness of the book. It's a, I mean, it's a, very, it's a very charming book, as its author was a very charming man. Mark, when, when did you first read The Little Prince? Well, I... I might have encountered the book when I was younger. I took French class starting in first grade growing up in Vermont and in high school, but I, it didn't really make an impression on me, and I don't think I really read it in its entirety until it was given to me by my girlfriend in college. And it was actually kind of um, a pivotal moment. I was actually, we met at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and I had um, gotten interested in animation, and I applied to Cal Arts, which was, you know, all the way across the country in California. And, and when I got accepted, we didn't want to split up, but she actually gave me her copy of The Little Prince at that time. And she said, you know, the book was meaningful to her and she wanted me to have it. And she would quote from the book in letters to me and said, you know, anything essential is invisible to the eye. And she said, even if we're not together, we'll still be together. And so the book became a powerful force in my life. And, and actually, it was a time when I was trying to find myself as an artist, but also struggling trying to figure out how to be a grown-up or a good grown-up or how to sort of move into the next phase of my life. And so, yeah, the book became incredibly significant and became a bond between us. And it's kind of crazy to look back at this point, having made the book into a movie, um, because now, you know, we're we're now married with, with two children and actually our son... Our daughter, Madison, became the she became sort of the model for the little girl character in the movie. But what's even crazier is the voice of the little prince was done by our son, Riley. And the final version of the movie, he's the final voice of the little prince. So it's very uh, surreal and quite magical at this point how that book has played a, a role in our lives and how that movie sort of became a family project. And whenever it got really difficult, I would always say to Kim, you know, this is a... This is all your fault, you know. You, you <laughs> your your wife, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> she started it all, right? Yeah. Do you remember what your response was when you were given the book? Apart from it, it seems like a, a, a vehicle for romance and, and connection with, with your future wife. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I even found the letters that I wrote back to her. I sent her a copy of the book back because I didn't want her to be without the book. And I said, you know, this book has changed my life. And um, I think it was powerful for me because it helped me connect also with my own sort of more artistic childhood. And I was sort of struggling to find myself as an artist. And, and it really inspired me to sort of reconnect and kind of go back in time and I think that's what's incredible about the book is it can actually transport you back to your own sort of way of thinking like a child and and it's quite incredible in that way. Before we go any further, I, I wonder if someone could give us a, a very brief description of, of The Little Prince. Uh, Eric, could you give us a kind of summary of it? Um, the book tells the story of an aviator who is forced to land in the Sahara Desert where he encounters a young boy wandering alone. And both characters find themselves in a crisis situation. The aviator will die if he does not succeed in repairing his engine. The boy had to leave his planet because of a misunderstanding he had with his rose. They exchange stories and ponder about issues such as friendship, love, and how to be in this world. Anyone want to add to that? <laughs> I guess I would say that, um, that that's a wonderful description. That he, he, This is a cosmic urchin who, before he meets our aviator, our narrator, has made a, a tour of six planets on which he encounters various forms of adult life, um, none of which quite meets with his approval and all of which display aspects of absurdity. There's a businessman who can only um, traffic in numbers. All, all, the, all of these are adults who miss the essential, which was very much the author's take on, on the adult world, on administrators. And this was a revenge, in a way, on the administrators and bureaucrats um, whom he had crossed swords with in the course of his career. And these are, these are always people who miss, who miss the main show, who are somehow not seeing the forest for the trees. And the little prince marvels at each time at their short-sightedness. And I would just add, what's incredible about the story is that it, it asks you to bring your own experiences in your, your own life, and, and it really invites you into the conversation and the book really does become a meaningful conversation and I think it deals with it deals with childhood and it deals with adulthood and I think it's a it's a incredible handbook on how to be a good adult by remembering what it is like to be a child the Little Prince is dedicated to a man named Leon Vert. At least it starts out acknowledging that man. Mark, you, you've chosen this passage to read. Could you do that right now? Sure. Yeah, I love this. I, I was struggling to come, come up with a reason why, and I said it's like a decoder ring in a way, even though it doesn't really decode anything. It does give you some clues on how to read the book. And actually, I think it's the passage that convinces me that it really is written for grown-ups. So it says, I ask the indulgence of the children who may read this book for dedicating it to a grown-up. I have a serious reason. He is the best friend I have in the world. I have another reason. This grown-up understands everything, even books about children. I have a third reason. He lives in France where he is hungry and cold. He needs cheering up. If all these reasons are not enough, I will dedicate the book to the child from whom this grown-up grew. All grown-ups were once children, although few of them remember it. And so I correct my dedication to Leon Verth when he was a little boy. Who, who was Leon Verth? Leon Verth was a French writer, 20 years older than Saint-Exupéry, whom um, he meets in the 30s and takes an immediate liking to. Um, Verth was a, was a nonconformist in his own right, a pacifist, an anti-colonialist. He was a veteran of World War I, 
And he'd become a writer of somewhat surrealist texts. Um, he was an art critic in part, and he wrote a, a number of essays. But with Saint-Exupéry, he was really a best friend. There was an immediate rapport. It was a rapport that lasted. At one point, Saint-Exupéry would refer to him as his conscience. It was to Léon Verth and his wife, whom he would go when he had troubles in his marriage. They were two of the only people who really knew how difficult that, that relationship was. And he became a symbol, really, of civility and of what, had, what was being lost in the modern world and ultimately lost um, in the war. So it really was someone whom he had almost sort of distilled into a, into a myth. Although it's the, the compassion for him in that introduction, uh, sorry, in, in that dedication lovely. is so affecting, yeah. It's, such, it's really one of the world's greatest introductions, isn't it? Hmm. And acknowledging what's happening. I mean, bringing reality into the fantasy of the story by, you know, this is a man he needs cheering up. He is in France where he's hungry and cold. He'll turn up in a number of books. There are, I think, three, three books of, of Saint-Exupéry's in which there are references to Verth. And then occasionally he will, he will say he's, he's, he's sick and he's cold. He's, he's, he's cold and he's sick, which was not, in fact, true. But, of course, he was suffering. And he came to be a stand-in, really, for how, for how Saint-Exupéry saw his country, you know, sick and suffering and under German occupation. I think it's also an early clue that this book is not to be taken lightly. I know it, kind of, it affects the reading. It does, certainly. It is uh, almost like a warning on, the, on page one. When, when you say not take this book lightly, what, what do you, you mean? I guess I cringe whenever it's called a children's book because I feel like it can't be classified. I think there are very profound children's books, and I think that's a, it's a fine thing. It doesn't knock it, but to me, I, and maybe just because I encountered the book as a grown-up, I do feel like it's a book that every grown-up should read. And I would hate for someone to not experience the book because they think it's for children or they don't think it's for them. And that's why if you read this dedication, hopefully it helps you kind of orient yourself and gives you the right um, frame of mind to take this book seriously. Stacy, in the mid-1990s, you published a biography of Saint-Exupéry. He was born in Lyon, France in 1900. His family came from what's called the provincial nobility, as you describe it. Can you tell me a bit about his background in early life? He loses his father very early in life, which clearly has some lasting repercussions. Is very close to his siblings, also loses a brother, a much beloved brother, as a child, which he will write about. Um, is raised largely by his mother and his grandmother outside of Lyon and then ultimately in Le Mans. Is sent away to boarding school, as would have been typical but doesn't hail from a family where, where his career is, is going to be predetermined in any, to any extent. The, the two obvious careers would at that point have been diplomatic or military. He heads somewhat reluctantly toward the naval exams, to, toward a career in the Navy, and manages um, rather dramatically to flunk his naval exam, which leaves him somewhat footloose. He clearly has an artistic streak. He enrolls temporarily in the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris um, and is sort of scratching around for a, for a career when he begins his, his military service. And his military service will take him to an airfield where he will essentially wear down a, a former German aviator who was giving flying lessons on the field 
and force that individual to take him up and to teach him something about flying. And that is essentially where the passion will ultimately bloom. Although even as a kid, I mean, when he was 12, he tried to construct an airborne bicycle and he persuaded a pilot to take him on a flight in, in, when they were living in, in Le Mans. Persuade is an operative word with saint exupéry There's a lot of persuasion. These were years where everyone in France is really under the spell of aviation. Aviation, the Wright brothers have made their first demonstration not far, in fact, from, from where saint exupéry grew up. And really, aviation fever has taken over. The French are in the foreground. They have the scientific knowledge. They have the luxury. They have the money to be able to experiment with aircraft. And they are the first ones really out of the gate in terms of short flights, setting records for across-channel flights. Really, the aviation news is at the top of everyone's agendas at this point. So his childhood enthusiasm for flying, is that something that we see, you know, makes sense looking backwards, uh, you know, as Kierkegaard put it about your life makes sense looking backward, but it has to be lived forward. So do we grasp those details as having greater significance because he turned into, you know, being a pilot? I think there's such a romantic streak from from the get-go. This is a child who, you know, would hold the family in thrall of his stories and who didn't really ever touch ground entirely. He really does. He, he later in life will say that he, you know, he hails from interplanetary space. And I think well before he flies, that is true of him. He's always a little bit off the ground, a little bit living in a fantasy world, very much given to mysticism. So, so the two were really, I mean, he really does find um, a realm in which he is completely at home when he makes his way toward aviation. St. Exupéry was known for his exploits as a pilot, but Stacey, you said one of the first things that drew you to him was the fact that he wasn't such a good pilot. I mean, he, he could be so absent-minded. How, how much of his exploits do you think were courageous, daring, and how much inattention or, or carelessness? I, I think he was a great pilot. I, I think the problem was he was a great but a distracted pilot, which sort of undermines the first term. There's a wonderful um, quote from his commanding officer at the end of his life, who basically says that he, the problem is not that Saint-Exupéry is distracted in flight, it's that he's distracted on the ground when he's getting his instructions. So um, I think that from a technical expertise point of view, there was no question that he was an immensely talented pilot. But there's also just a tremendous degree of um, he'd like to read in his aircraft and he wouldn't necessarily want to land until he'd finished his book. I, just, um, I, I love, of course, I love a story like that. So we, we all do. That's, if, if that wasn't enough to make you want to write a biography, um, he, he, he would tend, the mechanics would complain that when they had to clean out his a- aircraft after he'd flown, there were these crumpled balls of paper on the floor because he'd been writing in the cockpit. <laughs> The desert seems to have had a, a particular pull for Saint-Exupéry. Some, some of his earliest flying adventures took place in North Africa and the Sahara. What do you think it was about the desert that spoke to him? Well, the immensity of the desert and the silence of the desert are two things he never never seems to tire of. Like they come up repeatedly. And there, there's something very mystical about the desert. I mean, there is a religious feeling um, to the desert that seems to rise from the sands. And he will describe his first home, his first, his first posting, really, is to a, a fort on the desolate edge of the Western Sahara. He, he will describe that as, the, as, as his happiest home, really. Um, it's where he feels most settled, he, where he's living on a plank in the middle of nowhere. And, and these just, the, the golden sands around him, um, which are rather enchanting, seem to speak to him of some spiritual something spiritual. And he really, he really responds to that. It's, it's not difficult to imagine when you, when you see that kind of landscape, but, the, but his dreaminess and those, and those locations really, really go together perfectly. 
The pilot in The Little Prince seems to be a somewhat reluctant adult, and he's fascinated by the prince's way of seeing the world. Eric, how would you describe the relationship between the pilot and The Little Prince? Hmm. They are both intrigued uh, one by another. Uh, I've heard somebody said, and I really like this, this explanation, that this is the meeting of uh, the aviator. is actually meeting himself as a child. And I'm, I really like that explanation because there, there comes a time in every man's life that you wish you could talk to that child you have been or you grew out of just by, you know, just by curiosity. And uh, I think that explains best the relationship between the aviator and the little prince. I always saw it as, yeah, like he's having a midlife crisis. And I, I do also love the interpretation that he's meeting sort of himself as a child or meeting sort of the ultimate inner child. And it's that midlife crisis that, I don't know, at age 20, I guess I felt like I was having sort of an early onset midlife crisis because it really spoke to me. And then years later, when I read the book to my children, it kind of spoke to me in a different way. But I would say, I guess that's why I really look at this as a a story about sort of understanding how to be a grown-up through the lens of, of how a child sees the world. And so I think that that interplay between them and, and what they offer each other is is kind of extraordinary because, you know, the aviator offers the little prince quite a bit as well. Um, and so, a, sorry, Mark, to interrupt yeah. you. Um, I have a question. What does the aviator bring to the little prince beside the drawing of a, a sheep in a box? Well, that's pretty significant. But I guess it gives him an opportunity. He meets so many grown-ups in his travels, the little mm -hmm. prince. I feel like he, the aviator is the most significant grown-up that he encounters and gives him a great deal of perspective and opportunity to sort of explore his own thoughts and questions. Mm -hmm. So it, it really does feel like a key, pivotal relationship in, in the little prince's life as well. Okay. He's Thank the only grown-up in the book. The narrator is the only grown-up in the book who isn't short-sighted and and um, myopic, really. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's the only he's the only one who takes the little prince seriously. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't see him as a subject or a or a uh, an object of his own of his own essentially passion. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. But they do sound very much alike. I mean, the, the petulance that for which Saint Exupéry was famous with friends shows up, I think, in both their voices and that the little prince writing people off as mushrooms was something that, that the author himself had done that put down that, that dismissal of the adults for not letting Saint Exupéry pursue his artistic career, which we get in the narrator's voice. I mean, they're, they're, they're both of them sort of boy, boyish men in, in many ways, mm -hmm. both of them grappling with how to deal with responsibility and yet how to deal with this um, the sense of innocence. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, St. Exupéry was often frustrated by the adult world. Why was it particularly difficult for him to navigate, do you think? I think for anyone who has trouble following directions or feeling the rules apply to him, it was a difficult, it was a struggle at all times. Um, it was, it, France was a very hidebound country, particularly in those years. And to have come from um, an aristocratic milieu and have wanted to have been a pilot was already uh, stretching the, the boundaries a little bit. His pilot friends were always somewhat wary of him for his literary success. In fact, in some cases, outright malicious. And the literary world um, wrote him off as, you know, sort of a, a, a grease-stained, um, you know, blue-collar worker. They couldn't understand why this pilot was writing literature. So in many ways, he's, 
he's up against expectation and he's up against regulation. These are two things that, that sat poorly with him. And I think he was truly an artist. And I think that's what's also so extraordinary about the book, where it celebrates this idea that your art doesn't have to be perfect and it's a struggle and a challenge. And one of the most important things is sort of putting your art out there. And he talks about the story from the aviator's perspective as like he worked so hard to write this story and to create these illustrations so that people would know the little prince and would recognize him if they saw him. And it was more important that he put this document out into the world. And I try to uh, remember that. And I, when I talk to students, I say it's more important to have something that's finished that expresses who you are as an artist than to have something that's perfect that may never be finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes this a very powerful document as well. The Little Prince meets a number of different characters on the planets that he visits. Eric, you've said that the lamplighter in particular stands out for you. Could you read that passage from the book? Certainly. The fifth planet was very strange. It was the smallest of all. There was just enough room on it for a street lamp and a lamplighter. The Little Prince was not able to reach any explanation of the use of a street lamp and a lamplighter, somewhere in the heavens, on a planet which had no people and not one house. But he said to himself, nevertheless, it may well be that this man is absurd, but he is not so absurd as the king, the conceited man, the businessman, and the tippler, for at least his work has some meaning. When he lights his street lamp, it is as if he brought one more star to life or one flower. When he puts out his lamp, he sends the flower or the star to sleep. That is a beautiful occupation, and since it is beautiful, it is truly useful. When he arrived on the planet, he respectfully saluted the lamplighter. Good morning. Why have you just put out your lamp? These are the orders, replied the lamplighter. Good morning. What are the orders? The orders are that I put out my lamp. Good evening. Eric Dupont reading from The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It's from the Catherine Woods translation. Can you tell us a little about what's going on in that passage? Well, The Little Prince just uh, met a few characters on uh, different planets that he all, I think he found them uninteresting because they were selfish and they were uh, self-absorbed. And this one doesn't seem to, to be like the others. And he says something very important about when he says, uh, if it's useful, it must be beautiful. And, uh, of course, that's, uh, that's something from Socrates, if I'm not mistaken. But, of course, as a child, you don't understand that. You don't see the wink or the reference to, uh, to philosophy. And it's something that you absorb and that you assimilate as a truth without really thinking about it. And I think that's... Um, Maybe one of the best things that Saint-Exupéry was able to, uh, the, the most important effect that he was able to have on, on his reader is to guide them through uh, philosophy without them even noticing it. Eric, could you read the passage in French now? Sure. La cinquième planète était très curieuse. C'était la plus petite de toutes. Il y avait là juste assez de place pour loger un réverbère et un allumeur de réverbère. Le petit prince ne parvenait pas à s'expliquer à quoi pouvait servir, quelque part dans le ciel, sur une planète sans maison ni population, un réverbère et un allumeur de réverbère. Cependant, il se dit en lui-même, « Peut-être bien que cet homme est absurde, 
Cependant, il est moins absurde que le roi, que le vaniteux, que le businessman et que le buveur. Au moins, son travail a-t-il un sens. Quand il allume son réverbère, c'est comme s'il faisait naître une étoile de plus ou une fleur. Quand il éteint son réverbère, ça endort la fleur ou l'étoile. C'est une occupation très jolie. C'est véritablement utile, puisque c'est joli. Lorsqu'il aborda la planète, il salua respectueusement l'allumeur. « Bonjour, pourquoi viens-tu d'éteindre ton réverbère ?»« C'est la consigne, » répondit l'allumeur. « Bonjour, qu'est-ce que la consigne ?»« C'est d'éteindre mon réverbère. Bonsoir. » Eric Dupont reading from The Little Prince, or in this case, Le Petit Prince, by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. The Little Prince regrets leaving the planet where the lamplighter lives. Why is, is he more drawn to the lamplighter than, than to the other people that he's met so far? I believe that there's a certain level of empathy that he feels for, for the lamplighter because the condition of the lamplighter probably can be explained or can be traced back to uh, to external influences. I mean by that, if you take uh, the uh, businessman, for example, or the conceited man or the king, they're all ridiculous or absurd because of their own thinking, their own acting, or, or they are responsible for their fall. The, uh, the worker, the lamplighter, seems, it seems that something happened to him and that he was forced into this condition Not maybe not against his will, but very slowly. I think too there's an, there's a transfer um, with a lamplighter of that love of duty that so charms and so changes Saint Exupéry when he enters the mail service. I mean the very words la consigne, the orders. For to him that becomes a religious order in many ways. And for someone who had been fatherless and directionless and really not clear as to what his duty in life should be, he develops a, a, a near religious fascination with um, doing what is expected of you and being part of a, of a system. Yeah. And, he, and he lends some of that admiration, obviously, t to the lamplighter. Stacey, Mark, which of the characters are especially interesting to you? I think the, the fox is the one I always go back to, even though he's not a human, uh, you know, but... Um, The fox brings such uh, powerful wisdom and some of the most powerful wisdom in the book that the little prince shares with the aviator. So I always go back to that character as being sort of such a pivotal character. Yeah, we'll talk more about the fox soon. Uh, Stacy, do you have a favorite? The fox definitely has the best lines, doesn't yes. he? I, I, think, I think for me it's the, it's the Turkish astronomer, partly because I think Saint-Exupéry had so much fun drawing the fez and drawing the outfit. And partly because of what he does with that dress. I mean, he, he basically, he makes it clear that the astronomer had made an amazing discovery, which no one would take seriously until he no longer dressed as a Turk. And in that, of course, encapsulates so much of the grown-up world. But, I, but there's also a lovely backstory there. He, at one point, had had trouble at the Turkish border, uh, where he was taken for a spy. And I, and I do think there was an element of that in the, in the using Turkey here. And he, at one point, sends... Um, the, the astronomer is, is invested in, in cataloging every star in the sky... And when he was writing this section, Saint-Exupéry sent a friend's assistant to the Muse Museum of Natural History in New York to try to determine how many stars there were, precisely there were, in the sky so that he could use the number in the book. And obviously she never came up with an answer, but she wound up with a beautiful inscribed edition of the book. Because <laughs> the, the, the figure is, is, well, we could say astronomical. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe today we do have a figure that he might have used, but there was not one available to him in 1942. <laughs> Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. 
And I'm Chris Tolley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theatre into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. The Rose in The Little Prince doesn't have a lot of lines, but she's central to the story. She lives on the same asteroid as The Little Prince, where he cares for her, but eventually he leaves her. How do you see the relationship between the Rose and the Prince? It's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) I I found it to be one of the most challenging aspects of the story when I read it and when we were adapting it and trying to figure out how to portray. And honestly, it's one of the most problematic elements of the book for a lot of reasons, because it is sort of honest and complicated and truthful. And, you know, it's a book with all male characters and she's the only female character. But ultimately, I feel like the little prince and the rose, you know, there's so much there about love and relationships and responsibility and uh, abandonment. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a lot of really powerful stuff, but yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. The relationship between the prince and the rose is unsatisfying to them both. And and the prince leaves his planet for a time, mm-hmm. but then he realizes he has to return to her. Mm-hmm. So he ha- his feelings change in relation to the particularity of that rose. Stacy, do you think, I mean, people talk about the rose as being an allegory for St. Exupery's wife, Consuelo. What, 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 what do you make of it? I, mean, I, would, I would resist drawing a direct parallel, but, but there are obvious and, and insurmountable similarities. The, the rose is under her glass bulb, and in fact, Consuelo had asthma and so needed to be protected from the elements. There's an element of, um, of hysteria, of self-dramatization with Saint-Exupéry's wife. The relationship was a very difficult one, and they had pretty much come to living apart just before the war. So at the time that he's writing this book, the two of them are living on separate floors on Central Park South in New York City in separate apartments. And and he's feeling rather tortured by, by Consuelo at this point. She's come to keeping her own hours. He often waits up for her at night and finds that she doesn't come home. He leaves her tortured letters under her door. He's for years been complaining that she has embarrassed him publicly and that she is vain and not listening to him and... and and that has pretty much become an open secret among their friends. So there is something of the, of the rose, you know, sort of saying to the little prince, now go already, which is indeed what, what Consuelo would do when, when Saint-Exupéry would leave for the front the, the year after writing the little prince. And there's, there's a great deal, I think, more to the point of Saint-Exupéry's feeling on the one hand that he was being in some way tortured by this person and that utterly responsible for her and unable to be as responsible as he might have liked. He had somehow abdicated his, his duty to her because um, things had gotten so wildly out of hand. Well, it's interesting. I mean, she had affairs, he had affairs, uh, and a number of relationships with other women. What, what do you think he was looking for? Some kind of comfort. Some kind of comfort, and yet at, at one point, one of his, the, the French mistress to whom he's truly the closest over all the years says, makes some crack about one of the other girlfriends. And he, he's, he's very angry, and he says, don't attack my women, they're all crazy. Um, so you know, there, is a, there is a definite, there, there's, a, he's, there's a love of women here. And he um, had a certain kind of woman, as it said, he, they, he liked them titled tall and blonde. 
And that was the kind of woman he, he regularly gravitated toward. But he married someone short and dark. He married someone short and dark who has an extraordinary ability to sort of spin myths out of thin air, which I do think was probably the attraction. She's a mythomaniac. She's an extraordinarily sort of fictive creature whom he is utterly, entirely amused by and utterly mystified by and finds ultimately, however, for all of that amusement, very difficult to live with. So there's a wonderful... There's a wonderful note where, that he writes her at one point where he essentially says, if you're, if you're not here, I can't think, but if you talk, I can't write. And that was sort of the relationship in a nutshell. The sort of can't live without you, can't live with you exactly, kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The character of the fox plays an important role in The Little Prince, as you were saying earlier, that the fox has the best lines. The prince wants to make a friend of the fox, but the fox tells him he must tame him first. Well, why? What's that? Actually, it's one of the parts of the book that I find really interesting and mysterious. I always thought the word tame felt odd to me, and it felt like it was about empowering or, or dominating or, you know, sort of, and it, it never quite felt right. And someone told me that the, the French word that is used in the original is, is more about understanding. It's about understanding your neighbor as opposed to controlling them. And I think the English language doesn't have the right word to, to represent that. So we were sort of looking in, in the movie to pay tribute to this bigger idea. It's about understanding, about caring for someone else, understanding your neighbor in a way that is profound and uh, about creating connection. Eric, apprivoise uh, is, is the French word. How, how, how would you translate it? Because if you look in a dictionary, it will come up tame as in a wild animal, but it also has something to do with coming to terms with? Or Yes, it, it is literally, uh, just like Mark said, it is... Uh it means uh, learning uh, to, get, to get to know your neighbors, to understand your neighbors. That's what it means. And it is true that the English word for it is, the, it, it, it's not a poor translation, I would say. It's just that it has a connotation that the French does not have. That connotation is um, domination. It is uh, power. That, that, that's why when I, I read the English uh, translation of uh, The Little Prince, I also cringe when I see this word. Maybe... Maybe they could come up with um, an expression or something that uh, expresses better the, the true meaning of apprivoisé for future translations. I'm not sure. I think I would try it. Loneliness is, is a theme in The Little Prince. The pilot who narrates the story is, is looking for companionship. He doesn't want to lose his friend, the, the prince. Can you t talk about that sense of loneliness that, that runs throughout the story? I think that's something we, that, we, that we failed to touch on when we talked about what the two have in common. The narrator will say he lived his, his whole life without anyone to talk to, and the little prince obviously is on a minuscule planet with a very petulant rose. So this is something they do have in common, and, and this is something that really suffuses the entire book, that sense of misunderstanding among men. Mm -hmm. And when these two find this rapport, it is a magical thing because they do hail from such, from such solitude, the two of them, and, and will ultimately return there. That whole sense of, at the end of the book of looking up in the sky to a star and, and thinking of someone is, is an ultimate expression, it seems to me, of loneliness. Yes, even then, you know, all of these representations of these people standing alone on a planet, if, you know, for those who had not understood yet, it is also a book about loneliness, eh? I'm just, I, I'm just wondering, it's only just hitting me, is there an illustration other than the fox of two figures together in the entire book? I'm not sure there is. Well, even on the cover, I mean, that, that little prince standing on his planet, it's 
a child standing alone on a small planet is such a lonely image, a haunting, you know, image, kind of overpowering. Although Saint Exupéry craved company, Stacy, you, you point out that he didn't ally himself with any camp or school of thought or, or political alliance. What, what was it that held him back? Do you think? Well, yeah, and I think that's something we shouldn't forget that he he writes this book out of deep misery, and the early readers who really understood there were very few readers who really understood the book at first, but those who did were the ones who saw in it a sort of distillation of suffering, who saw in it how unhappy he was. When he'd come to New York after the fall of France, um, he came essentially to a New York in which there were separate communities for each political faction. And as was always the case with with someone as idealistic as Saint-Exupéry, he felt he could resist those factions and be friends to everyone. Uh, That was a non-starting idea. That really didn't work. And the ultimate result of that is that he would be pilloried by everyone, in fact. But he maintained, really until the end, this idea that he could somehow unite those factions of Frenchmen Um, all of whom, as one of them said, were having collective nervous breakdowns as their country was being overrun by the Germans. And he would publish, just before he leaves for the front, in fact, at the end of his life, an open letter to Frenchmen everywhere, essentially calling for that kind of unity, saying, can't we rise above our differences? And again, for that, he would just be besmirched with, with mud from every direction. So there was this kind of innocence. There was this very idealistic sense of, being able, trying in any case to overcome these partisan divides and discovering over and over again that that was an impossibility. Because he was anti-De Gaulle, but then he'd be accused of being a Vichyite, but then he, his best friend was Jewish. I mean, it was like, as you, as you say, it, there, was, it, there was no safe place for him. There was nowhere to stand. He know? has the unusual distinction, exactly, of being written off both by the Gaullists and by Vichy. It's not easy to do. Um, there's one phone call he has with, with the mistress who's in France where, because she knows the line is being tapped, she goes on about how great she thinks de Gaulle is. And he doesn't forgive her for about a year. So, yes, I mean, there's this amazing sense of he, he doesn't trust de Gaulle. He's completely broken with Vichy. But both sides will accuse him of having taken to the other side. Stacy, you suggest there might have been a degree of therapy for Saint Exupéry in writing *The Little Prince*. Can can you say a little more about that? Um, he he takes on the book pretty much as a whim, and indeed he took he seemed to take enormous joy in the exercise. So at this point where he feels extremely lonely, extremely cut off, very worried about his country and about his family and friends who are who are in occupied France, he has the distraction of writing this book about being somewhat out of the world, traveling through interplanetary space, basically poking fun at some of the foibles of human nature, and touching on some of the ideals that he has held to so tightly, despite all the evidence around him. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry was nearly 40 when the Second World War began. After the fall of France, he left for New York. He lived there for two years. But then he returned to France to fly for the military during the Second World War. And Stacey, you pointed out he, he did this when, you know, he was too old, he wasn't fit, he, he'd, you know, suffered these various crashes and, and, and health issues. What drove him back? Well, there you very much um, go back to the, the la consigne, the orders of the lamplighter. Um, this was what he wanted to have been doing from the moment France fell. He wanted to be fighting for his country. He did not, would not want to be in exile in New York. This was his duty, and it was the one thing he felt he could contribute so there was no question in his mind, and, and, it, and it was something on which he harped throughout the entire New York State, was how to get back to the front, how to rejoin his squadron, how to get back into the air. 
he disappeared over the Mediterranean on a reconnaissance mission in 1944. His body has never been found. What do we know about that? The remains of the aircraft have, have been found. So the mystery of his having, for many years it seemed as if he had like the little prince disappeared into thin air, which was a lovely parallel. Um, the remains of the aircraft have subsequently been found. So we know he did fall to earth in some way. We don't know what happened that day. Um, it was July 31st, 1944. It was just before Paris would be liberated. So at this, time in, at this point in his life, a high altitude mission was a very high risk proposition. Any number of things could have happened. It's possible that he was shot down, but there, the evidence on that is a little bit inconclusive. Um, it's unlikely. There were no bullet holes found in the aircraft. No, it's very, and there's no report that really corresponds to what could have happened that day. Um, he had had a habit of, at one point, he, he diverts when he isn't meant to over occupied Italy, and he's shot at. He had had a fire on board. He had lost his oxygen mask. I mean, every number of things had happened over the previous, over those previous flights. But we don't know precisely what happened that day. It was well known that reconnaissance missions during the war could be suicidal. What, what frame of mind do you think he was in at the time? He's clearly preparing in some way. And, and he, one didn't go up on a reconnaissance mission, not, not at least considering the thought that one might not return. But he's at this point taken a certain number of steps to indicate to people that he not has a death wish, but that he doesn't know that he's going to make it through the war. Um, at one point, after he's been grounded after a previous mishap, which is to say he's forgotten how to break an, the aircraft. It's, he's flying a P-38 Lightning, which is infinitely more sophisticated than any aircraft he'd ever flown before. It has nearly 150 controls. The aircraft on which he had learned to fly had none. Um, and he doesn't speak English, so can't communicate with the, with the air tower. At one point, after a mishap with an American plane, he has to fight his way back into the cockpit. And he essentially says to the American colonel to whom he's reporting, I want to die for France. And of course, the American response to that is, I don't care if you die for France or not, you're not going to do so in one of our airplanes. But there is that sense of, you know, anything needs to be sacrificed for the liberation of my country. He's old, he's tired, um, he's pretty wretched, everything aches, he's got a ringing in his ears, he can, he's very, very given to nausea, he can barely bend over, getting out of bed is painful at this point. He's pretty much a wreck of a man. So th there is definitely a sense on his part of not knowing what the post-war world is going to be like, not sure that he's going to see it. When you say old, I mean, he's 44. He's 44, but he's... He's um, old for, to be a pilot, he's for, old, for sure. He's, exactly. He's old. He shouldn't have been in the, in the cockpit of a P-38. And he'd given away his typewriter and his chess set. He had. He had. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would read into that some sort of, you know, suicide mission, but I think there was a sense that he was playing with time. There was a journal entry in the Morgan Library's uh, show that they put up where they had a ton of evidence. Uh, I think it was called uh, Little Prince, a New York Story. And there was a journal entry from a dear friend who, upon reading the, the book, after it was finished, and she was one of the first people to read the book, said in her journal that she was very worried about him and that he didn't have... It appeared that he wasn't long for this world based on what she knew of him and what she saw in the book. That was Anne Morrow Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's wife, who was very, who was extremely fond of him, I think had something of a, of a sort of fascination with him. Mm. There was always a, there was always a, a funny parallel with the Saint-Exupéry having a, disappeared into thin air after having seen 44 sunsets. And the little prince, of course, um, after having, after having been 44 years old, I'm sorry, and the little prince 
has witnessed 44 sunsets. So there was there was this additional sort of death wish read into the book mm-hmm. in the fact that it had somehow predicted Saint-Exupéry's own death. Numerology. Yes, exactly. <laughs> death is one of the themes in The Little Prince. The poisonous snake is an ominous presence. Eric, what, what do you make of the snake? Um, the snake has always been presented to me already as a child as uh, the representation of suicide, that it was the ultimate choice that everybody is free to uh, to have or not have. That's how it was presented to me because we, I, I did talk about that, the snake with um, my, my stepmother, of course. And uh, I think that's what made her like the book so much is that the author dared to represent such a harsh reality with the simplicity that he, uh, with his usual simplicity. Eric, you were saying when you first were introduced to the book, it was as a kind of uh, secular read. Uh, other people have suggested a religious context or biblical connections. How, how do you see it? Well, we we have just been over the uh, the episode of the suicide with the snake at the end of the book, and I think it was this episode in particular that. Uh, later on made me understand that this book was some, a sort of a lay gospel. I don't know if you can say that. But having grown up in a region where religion had so much importance, I cannot see how this book made it into any Catholic school library. There's no God in it. There's no, refer- there's no direct reference to it. There needs to be a direct reference to God or else it's not a religious book. And then at the end comes this awful uh, scene of uh, that, that, that can be, no, it cannot be interpreted as a suicide. It is a suicide. And that's why uh, it, it makes me wonder how this book ever made it into any Catholic school library. It's, it's just, um, I, I just don't see how it fits in there. But the nuns were never reluctant to lend it to us, though. Did anyone ask them difficult questions in relation to the book? Oh, they always start, uh, they always went back to the fox. They, you know, you would ask you would ask a question about the snake. Yes, but the snake, sister uh, sister Jeanette, tell us about the snake. Oh yes, the snake is nice, but don't forget about the fox. And then she would always go back to the fox. Mark, could you read a, a passage from The Little Prince? This is very near the book's end, where the pilot is reflecting on his time in the, in the desert with the prince. And this is right after he loses the prince. And, you know, I always struggle with that. I think you're right. It, it's it's um, interpreted as a suicide, characterized as a suicide. I'm always trying to find an optimistic. It's a It's a decision that he makes, a partnership that he makes. But this passage comes right after that. And it's the aviator struggling to make sense of what's happened. And now six years have already gone by. I have never yet told this story. The companions who met me on my return were well content to see me alive. I was sad, but I told them I am tired. Now my sorrow is comforted a little. That is to say, not entirely. But I know that he did go back to his planet because I did not find his body at daybreak. It was not such a heavy body. And at night, I love to listen to the stars. It is like 500 million little bells. But there is one extraordinary thing. When I drew the muzzle for the little prince, I forgot to add the leather strap to it. He will never have been able to fasten it on his sheep. So now I keep wondering what is happening on his planet. Perhaps the sheep has eaten the flower. 
At one time I say to myself, surely not. The little prince shuts his flower under her glass globe every night, and he watches over his sheep very carefully. Then I am happy, and there is sweetness in the laughter of all the stars. But at another time I say to myself, at some moment or other, one is absent-minded, and that is enough. On some one evening, he forgot the glass globe, or the sheep got out without making any noise in the night, and then the little bells are changed to tears. Here, then, is a great mystery. For you, who also love the little prince, and for me, nothing in the universe can be the same if somewhere, we do not know where, a sheep that we never saw has, yes or no, eaten a rose. Look up at the sky. Ask yourselves, is it yes or no? Has the sheep eaten the flower? And you will see how everything changes. And no grown-up will ever understand that this is a matter of so much importance. Mark Osborne reading from The Little Prince from the Catherine Woods 1943 translation. How has The Little Prince changed for you since you first read it? Well, I think I was just scratching the surface of the book when I first read it, and, and, and it affected me in many ways. There's so much happening in the book, and, and at that time, there were so many directions I was sort of pulled in. But I've since re-encountered the book, reading it to my children, and then diving very deeply into the book and all of its meanings and all the different various interpretations as I was trying to figure out how to pay tribute to it and to pay tribute to the power of this story. And I think the thing that changed the most for me is really sort of understanding that the common bond that we all have and the reason why the book affects us so much is just it affects us each individually and sort of realizing that that's the common thread. The power of the book is how we all have our own conversation and we can have a conversation with a friend or a loved one or we can we can explore the themes of the book and what the book brings out in our own life and our own experiences. And it's extraordinary how much it opens up a dialogue and how it, how it has the ability to touch us and, and cause us to ask questions of ourselves. Stacy, how do you see The Little Prince now compared to when you first read it? Well, I, I would agree with Mark that there is that extraordinary universality, which would explain why we have the Little Prince translated into so many languages. He really, he, he has succeeded exactly in doing it precisely what he hoped in finding a universal language. I think the, it, it's a book that changes every time you read it, which is perhaps the, the definition of a classic. You see, you see different things in it each time. I think for many years I was taken in by the innocence of the book and by the sweetness of the book, by the diffidence of The Little Prince. And, and now, of course, it, it seems like a tremendously sophisticated book. Um, I see the imperiousness more than I see the diffidence. And it's a, and it's a sad book. I mean, the, the lost childhood, the involuntary exile from childhood of the narrator, the, the continued, up, right up until the last passage, that those continued assaults, those grenades lobbed at the adult world, it does seem like, in many ways, a cry of pain. Um, and I think one we can all relate to in many ways. Eric? Well, um, looking at The Little Prince uh, now, I almost feel like I'm having a conversation with myself because of your question, because of your questions, because I'm being sent back to this conversation I had uh, about this book uh, with my stepmother in 77. And I'm, right now I'm thinking about all the conversations I had about l The Little Prince, because you, you know, very often you will go someplace in the world 
Uh, for example, two years ago, I was in Brazil having a conversation with my neighbor. I lived in a high rise and she knew the little prince and she had learned some of the passages by heart. And, you know, that's when I understood that this book is probably probably what unites me or what is the cement between me and what's a part of the cement between me and the rest of humanity, I would say. Eric Dupont, Stacy Schiff, Mark Osborne, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stacey Schiff's biography of St. Exupery is available in paperback from Holt. Mark Osborne's animated film of The Little Prince is available on streaming services. Eric Dupont's latest novel in English is called Rosa's Very Own Personal Revolution. And there was a special 75th anniversary edition of The Little Prince, published by Houghton Mifflin. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson, with thanks to Melissa Gismondi and Katie Swales. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, Congolese French writer Alain Maboncou. His recent books are charming explorations of childhood, family, and country. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.